Over these past few weeks, the book of Esther has been showing us ways that we can carve a legacy from chaos. Last week, we uh, looked at uh, this, this lesson from Vashti, do what's right, not what's easy. How can we carve a legacy out of chaos? Now, there's no doubt that chaos is all around us. You know, Melbourne has just entered into lockdown for another six weeks. Um, we see that cancel culture is out of control on social media. And this week, in our area, we saw this new policy that everyone has to wear masks in a public area. So that moment that you feel that you can finally pause for breath, the goalposts seem to change. And so, yeah, we, we understand chaos. We get it. And sometimes chaos feels like a tidal force that's carrying us along. And the best that we can hope for is to hold on tight and pray that we don't fall off. But friends, chaos isn't new to 2020. We aren't the first to experience chaos, and for sure we won't be the last. But the hope that we have to offer the world is is a God who's not swept along with the tide, who's not put out or frustrated by what's going on. We serve a God who's seen nations and empires and kingdoms rise and fall and rise and fall, and who has never changed one iota. We serve a God who's faithfully carving his legacy in the background many times without us even knowing. And this is the God who asks us to join him in faith in his workshop and to kind of place our hands on his as he holds the chisel and carves a legacy out of chaos that will last for eternity. So let's get stuck into the book of Esther again. We've looked at Xerxes, we've looked at Vashti, like here. And this turn, and this morning it's Mordecai's turn. And my hope and my prayer is that as we weave, weave uh, together um, the story of one character and then the story of another character, week after week after week, that we will start to kind of build up this incredible sandwich or this incredible 3D model of God's genius and glory and plan. And we'll see it starting to take shape even before our very eyes. So this morning, we will be looking at, le- at this lesson from Mordecai to get serious with sin. Get serious with sin. Now in Esther chapter 2 verse 5, we're told some of Mordecai's family history. That uh, he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He's son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so we learn here that Mordecai was part of that second wave of exiles that we talked about in week one. Now, unless you've been hiding in a cave, you know that words are powerful weapons, and we're seeing them being we- being being wielded um, sometimes appropriately, sometimes not on social media. All the time, wound, uh, words can wound. Well, in um, Esther chapter five, verse thirteen, Haman refers to Mordecai as that Jew, Mordecai. And then later, we, we find out, or sorry, earlier, we find out that Haman in chapter 3 verse 10 is referenced as the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And so he refers to, to Mordecai as that Jew, and um, Haman is known as the enemy of the Jews. So much of Mordecai's story is actually told through this filter of his rivalry with Haman. Okay, so 
why did they hate each other so much? Now, I want you to picture with me, uh, okay, to help us understand this, I, I, want, I want you to picture with me the world in 3,000 years' time, okay? Much has changed. There's now flying cars, and there's, there's teleportation. Uh, there are clones. We've, we've now colonized Mars. In fact, that happened 1,500 years ago. Uh, science fiction is now reality. Now, there's a historian at the Lunar University, and she's doing her PhD studies on this ancient culture called Canada. And she's studying particularly this, this time in uh, 2019, 2020, a long, long, long time ago. You know, you know, like I said, ancient history, 3,000 years ago. And she's reading these first-hand records of this phenomenon called Iki hockey or ice hockey. Experts aren't quite sure how to pronounce it. And they apparently played this on frozen water. And as she's studying about Iki hockey or ice hockey, she keeps running into the same words over and over again. It, uh, the word habs and the word sends, and she's trying to figure out who these tribal groups are and how they relate to each other and why they seem to hate each other so much. And as she's scan reading using her virtual optical lens, she's also reading about this third group called the Leafs. And she starts to realize that the only thing that seems to be stronger than the hatred between the Habs and the Sens is their mutual hatred of the Leafs, whoever they are. And so she resolves to find out what lies at the basis of this rivalry. Friends, for us to understand this mutual hatred between Mordecai and Haman, it's like our lunar student in the year 5000. And 20, trying to understand the rivalry between the Habs and the Sands and the Leafs. In other words, we need context. Now, in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, as I mentioned earlier, Mordecai is, is known as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in Esther chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And then in verse 10, he's known as the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews. And so Haman being an Agagite and Mordecai being a Benjamite, or a Benjaminite, a Benjamite, these are both important clues that will help us to see why this rivalry exists and what God's trying to communicate to us through the story of Mordecai. So we start back in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Okay? Moses has led the Israelites to freedom after 400 years of slavery under the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea. There's manna, there's quail, there's water from a rock. And they're now encamped at a place called Rephidim when the Amalekites, who are a brutal nomadic group, attack the Israelites who are literally just tasting their first breaths of freedom. Exodus 17 verse 8. 
The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so this, this whole this whole episode of the, of the Amalekites um, waging war against these freshly released slaves, well, it's not a nice thing to do. In fact, later on in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. It's, it's like, you know, what, what I see when I hear this is a picture of a, of, a, of a hyena attacking a wounded animal. It's a cowardly image. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a horrific image. It's not nice. And so then in this, in this fight, like we read, Moses uh, raises his hands in prayer in the middle of the battle. And, uh, and her and Aaron help him. And, uh, and that gives Joshua and the Israelites uh, the victory in the battle. Now, it's hard to convey accurately to you how relentlessly brutal the Amalekites were, but they never seemed to let up on the Israelites. First of all, in uh, Numbers chapter 14, they joined the Canaanites and they attacked the Israelites. Then they helped the Moabites enslave the Israelites for 18 years in Judges chapter 3. Um, then while the, while the Israelites were hiding in caves in Judges chapter 6, the Amalekites, as part of a, co- of a coalition, just kept on coming in and destroying their crops time after time after time. And so it's no surprise in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 19 when they are instructed... Uh, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Very clear instructions, right? Okay, then fast forward to First uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. The, the, the Israelites are now settled in Canaan, and Saul is king. And as one of Saul's first tasks in office, Samuel the prophet tells him in First Samuel 15, verse 1, um, he, says, he says, I am the one. Let's just see if I can find it. Yeah. Okay, he says, he says, I am the, uh, he says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Verse two on the screen. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. There it is again. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels, and donkeys. So God's instruction to Saul is clear. He's saying now is the time to fulfill what God said to Moses all of those years ago. And so Saul goes on and goes ahead and, and he, he, and he chases after the Amalekites. He, um, you know, in fact, we read in the Bible, he chases them from Havilah to Shur, and Shur is uh, near the eastern border of, 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 of Egypt. So this is a long, long chase, and he wipes them out. But then Saul makes a critical mistake. He leaves the job unfinished. Verse 9 of First Samuel chapter 15. 
But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. But Saul spared Agag. Friends, the Amalekites are like sin. And sin has to be dealt with. Because allowing sin to run free is like allowing an intruder into your house. And so we need to get serious with sin. Satan is counting on you being soft on sin. On nurturing unhealthy habits that raid your marriage, your friendships, your peace of mind. That raid your conscience. That raid your legacy. That, that, that can even raid your eternal relationship with God himself. So like the Amalekites, we need to get serious with sin. Now, Saul thought that he could reach a compromise with the enemy of God, just like we sometimes think that we can make a compromise with sin. You know, we're like little kids, right, who instead of actually tidying their their rooms, just shove everything under the bed and hope that mum or dad are too exhausted to look. But God looks under the bed. God is not fooled. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. So how did God respond to Saul's disobedience? With these words. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. And this moment, friends, was the start of the nosedive of Saul as king. Saul was, he was finished. His time as king was over. The next chapter, David is actually anointed as the future king. And so what was left after this moment was a, was a, was a life of self-destruction, of suspicion, of sickness, and eventually suicide. We justify willful sin sometimes in our lives by saying, I'm a work in progress. God's not finished with me yet. Which is a true statement, but we need to be careful when we use our humanness as an excuse to harbor known sin. After after all, your sin and my sin was serious enough to send Jesus to the cross. If we do not wage war against sin and Satan, if we do not get serious, if we compromise, if we choose to, to coexist with sin rather than rooting its rooting it out, then we have no control over how this sin will impact the lives of others in the future. And that's where Mordecai comes into the story. Because just like Mordecai, because just like Saul, Mordecai was a Benjamite. And Mordecai had to live with the consequences of his ancestor compromising with the enemy of God. Mordecai had to deal with Saul allowing Agag to live. And here's how. Because 500 years later and 1,200 kilometers away in Susa, the ripple effects of Saul's compromise were still felt. Because Haman was an Agagite. He was was a descendant of the very man who Saul allowed to live. And so Haman comes on the scene as this sworn enemy of the Jews. And he has uh, none other in his crosshairs other than Mordecai the Benjamite. 
Saul was tasked with eradicating these sworn enemies of God's people, and he chose not to do it completely. And now we have Haman, an Agagite, empowered by Xerxes, you know, the ruler of the known world, to wipe out God's people. The irony is heartbreaking. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nizam, the pure, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Mordecai is identified as a Jew. Haman is identified as the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai's refusal to honor Haman fuels such a rage in Haman that he's willing to wipe out all Jews forever. Now, we could say to Mordecai, for goodness sake, it's not worth it. Would you just bow down and honor the man? And we could take Haman aside and say, for goodness sake, you can't kill a whole group of people because of the insubordination of one man. And yet here we have kind of lived out in flesh this age-old uh, riddle. What happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? What happens when the irresistible force of Haman's hatred meets the, the immovable object of Mordecai's resistance? This, friends, is a mess of epic epic proportions, one that exists because of Saul's disobedience and one that will require, because of Saul's disobedience, the intervention of a powerful God working through imperfect humans and imperfect systems to remedy. In short, God is their only hope. God is needed. In um, 2014, we, we visited Nagasaki in Japan, this, this, this very place where 69 years earlier, an atom bomb exploded. Now, for someone who's never seen the power of a nuclear bomb, right, it was the first one, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So for someone who's never seen the power of a nuclear bomb, those bombs that fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki may have looked relatively harmless. And yet, these bombs killed killed about 330,000 people over the next few months, either through the explosion or through radiation sickness. There's a reason why we say, it hit me like a bombshell. 
Friends, once the bombshell of our actions is released, we have no way to control the fallout. We cannot. If someone had come up to Saul and said to him, listen, Saul, if you let Agag live, then 500 years later, in a location 1,200 kilometers from here, one of uh, Agag's one of his descendants will have the, uh, have, have the intent and the motive and the opportunity to wipe out every single one of your descendants. Do you think for one moment that Paul would not, that uh, Saul would not have in that instant finished the job that, called, that God called him to do? Of course he would have. But Saul couldn't see the future and neither can we. All that we can do is choose to make the right decision now and to walk in obedience to God's revealed will now. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So much of the Bible is a warning, warning us not to engage in sinful actions and mindsets that not only wage war against our own souls, but can actually have a generational impact far beyond what we can imagine or control. Maybe you've experienced what that's like where someone in your past, maybe your parents or your grandparents, they made a decision that you're still reaping the whirlwind of those consequences now. And so some of us today have to be warned. We need to be warned like our souls are at stake and the fate of our children and their children is at stake. And even society and culture itself, our actions are never isolated. There are always unforeseen consequences. And I know for some of you here today that you need to hear this. You need to hear the warning to Resist the devil to flee youthful lusts, to, to, to wear the armor of God, and to start getting serious with sin in your life. Now, you've not yet crossed that point of no return, but like Cain, that sin is crouching at your door. So you need to be warned. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But that's not the whole message of the gospel, of the Bible, is it? No, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, the message of Esther is this, that God can undo what sin and Satan and pride and selfishness have done. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 does not end with, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. It's, it's not just a warning. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 actually carries on. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. First John chapter 2 verse 1 is a warning and it's a way back. And the story of Mordecai shows us that God can and will give us a way back. He will undo the harm and the bitterness of generations of unresolved sin if we allow Jesus to come in and if we come to him in repentance. We need to reject our failed attempts to save ourselves. We need to stop trying to figure out a solution. Instead, we need to come to God simply and in humility with, 
with just ourselves, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. If you've crossed that line and you know that you've been living in disobedience, just like Saul, listen to these words of hope from Charles Wesley. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. There is no generational brokenness that cannot be healed at the cross. There is no ingrained habit that cannot be broken at the cross. There is no wandering that you cannot be brought home from. There is no trespass that cannot be forgiven at the cross. There is no no debt that was not paid in full at the cross. There is no lawlessness that was not covered at Calvary. There is no, no bondage that cannot be broken by Jesus. There is no pit so deep that his light cannot shine into it. There is no rebellion that God cannot bring his peace into. Do you believe this? Jesus died to bring unity between sinful you and a holy God by rooting out the root of sin in your life. And now God patiently waits and looks across no man's land for you to take the first step of faith towards him. He waits to see your white flag of surrender. Friends, are you willing to surrender? Because if you're willing to surrender everything to God, then God is ready to fully and wholly and completely accept your surrender. God offers you a U-turn. Romans chapter 6 verse 13 talks about a U-turn. It says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, here's the U-turn, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And that's what we see in the gospel. A reversal of fortune. A great U-turn. And Mordecai's story shows us just how amazingly shocking and mind-boggling the U-turn can be that God wants to bring into your life as you offer your surrender to him. You turn number one that we see from Mordecai is honor. In Esther 3, Haman tries to force Mordecai to honor him. But by Esther 6 verse 11, Haman is forced to honor Mordecai. An incredible U-turn of honor. U-turn number two is justice. In Esther 5 verse 14, Haman builds a 75-foot pole to impale Mordecai on. But by Esther 7 verse 10, Haman is impaled on the pole that he created to kill Mordecai. An incredible U-turn of justice. 
U-turn number three is influence. In Esther chapter 3 verse 1, Haman is uh, Xerxes' right-hand man. But by Esther chapter 10 verse 3, we read this. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. U-turn number four. Authority. In Esther Esther 8 verse 2, we read that Xerxes gives Mordecai the very ring of power that Haman tried to use to kill the Jews. Let me say that again. Xerxes gives Mordecai the very ring of power, the symbol of Xerxes' authority himself that Haman had tried to use to kill the Jews. So a U-turn of authority. U-turn number five, a U-turn of inheritance. Mordecai took charge over Haman's estates. What was Haman's is now Mordecai's. What an inheritance. And U-turn number six, one of prestige, one of honor, one of prestige. In Esther 1, we read of the glory of Xerxes' 180-day show-and-tell, right? This big thing that went on for month after month after month. And chapter 1, verse 6, in the middle of this, we're told this funny little detail that the color scheme of this incredible festival that celebrated Xerxes' fame and wealth was white and blue and purple. We even learn about what the color scheme was, which is a weird little detail, right? Why is that in there? Well, it makes sense why it's important for us to know about this color scheme of white and blue and purple, you know, it's a symbol of Xerxes' um, glory. When it, it makes sense when we read Esther chapter 8, verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. God's God's commitment to show us the U-turn that he alone can bring is detailed even down to the color scheme. God wants us to be under no illusion that the impact of the gospel on a surrendered, uh, a surrendered life, that the impact of the gospel on a surrendered life is complete and absolute and total. It took 500 years and 1,200 kilometers until God eradicated the cancer of the Amalekites in the Jewish people. What God commanded in Exodus and Deuteronomy and could have been wrapped up in 1 Samuel took until the book of Esther to complete. But it doesn't need to be like that for me and you. Because the message of Esther is the message of the cross. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a U-turn. 
In Esther, God took a wooden structure of torture and death, and God, you turned it into a symbol of hope and freedom by using it to end the reign and break the power of the enemy of the Jews. That's what happened in Esther. On Calvary, God took a wooden structure of torture and death and he U-turned it into a symbol of hope and freedom by using it to end the reign and break the power of the enemy of our souls. God carved a legacy of hope in Mordecai's life from the chaos of 500 years of history. And God is waiting to carve a legacy of hope in your life from the chaos of a lifetime of sin. On that cross, God got deathly serious with sin. He dealt with it once and for all. And so no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven at the cross. No matter what sin and brokenness exists in your family tree, God will give you a new family tree at the cross. No matter how far you've strayed, God will bring you home at the cross. Friends, the cross shows us how seriously God takes sin. Maybe it's time that you got serious with sin.